Okay, good morning, everyone. Glad you all made it to the 9 a.m. sunrise service here. <laughs> um, thanks again. Um, if you guys want to stand with me, we'll begin with the call to worship from Psalm 148. Psalm 148. I'll read the bold section if you'll read with me following. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. And he established them forever and ever. He gave a decree, and it shall not pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all deeps, fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind fulfilling his word. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above heaven, earth and heaven. He has raised up a horn for his people. Praise for all his saints, for the people of Israel who are near to him. Praise the Lord. If you'll turn with me, we'll be singing a new song this morning, but actually an old song. Uh, Song number nine, All Creatures, which is actually taken from the psalm that we just read. So maybe you'll notice some similar language. So if you want to follow along with me, we'll sing All Creatures.
confession of sin this morning comes from Psalm 32, 5. I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. If you'd read with me. Almighty Father, creator of heaven and earth, you have given us life and breath and everything. Yet we, like Adam, have gone our own way and sought to hide our sin from you. We confess our sins, running to Jesus Christ for refuge, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And by your Holy Spirit, would you conform us to the image of your Son, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Turn with me, we'll sing another new song. Song number 10, Come Thou Fount. Come Thou Fount. Come Thou Fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Understanding our, our need to confess our sins, we also have an assurance 
of pardon. There's hope. The Old Testament shows us a, a, a type, a shadow of what's to come, a promise of what's to come. The New Testament shows us the reality of that promise in Jesus Christ. So the assurance of our pardon comes from John 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him, who sent me as his eternal life, whoever sent him has, let me read that again. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning where we can gather together. Coming to you knowing how much we need you. The sins that we have, that we can confess them to you and that you give us an assurance of pardon. That you would come and you would make us clean. Thank you for that, Lord. Be with us this day, Lord, as uh, Kendall brings the word to us. Your word. And may it refresh our hearts, may it cleanse our minds, may it uh, encourage us to go out and be a better Christian. In Jesus' name, amen. Our confession of faith this morning comes from the Orthodox Catechism. And I don't know about you, but I came from a tradition raised in church, but not having confessions or having uh, uh, creeds or anything like that. So when I was first introduced to Reformed theology and these creeds and these confessions of faith, these catechisms uh, were introduced to me, I thought, I wonder what the purpose of this is. And when I understand, as I studied more, I understood that these were not arbitrary things, but these were, there was a purpose in these. Uh, in the times when these were written, the church was being bombarded with uh, heresies that were trying to infiltrate the church. And so they came up with these creeds, again, not as arbitrary, but as, as a, a summary of the truth that they stood for. And... Uh, so these different catechisms, these different creeds, uh, put it in simple form what they believed. So when they came together in unity, they had an understanding, this is what we believe. And as catechisms, what I really like about the catechisms is that they ask questions that we either have already come up with or questions that we may not have even thought of. And then they give an answer to those questions. Catechisms and the creeds are not in and of themselves, but they always point to the Word, to Scripture. And that's the importance of that. It's, they don't stand alone by themselves. They point to the Word. They always point to the Word. It's our standard. It's what we have to live on. So let me ask, uh, ask the question, and then you can read along with me the answer. What is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong, both body and soul, in life and death, 
unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who, with his precious blood, has fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from all the power of the devil, and so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Yes, all things must work together for my salvation. And therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me willing and ready that from now on I may live for him. You can be seated. Well, good morning again, everyone. Glad you're all able to make it. Um, this bright and early <laughs> service we have. Um, if you want to turn with me in your Bibles, we've been going through the book of Acts, and we'll continue today in chapter 9. We'll be looking at verses 19 through 31. 19 through 31. And so we've been going through the book of Acts, and I won't rehash everything, but specifically last week we looked at um, the man Saul. He was this man that we read earlier that was persecuting the church, that was coming against it, ravaging it, bringing out women and men, and even killing some. And so last week we looked at his, his radical conversion. We saw him on the road, and a bright light comes from heaven and knocks him off his horse and blinds him. And then we saw Ananias come to him, pray for him. His sight is restored, and he's baptized, he believes, and, and we'll see the continuation of that story this week. And I know you guys have heard me talking every time about the acts of the risen Lord Jesus, and you probably think I'm crazy or something, but last week we saw that break in, right? That this is not, that Jesus did not just go to heaven and leave it to his disciples or the Holy Spirit that... The Lord is present, that these are the acts of him building his church by his spirit. And we saw the risen Lord appear to Saul last week in a very tangible way. And so we'll continue that this week. And we'll be covering 13 years of Saul's life in, this, in these short verses. We'll be covering 13 years. That might not be apparent, but and hopefully the outline is helpful. And for me, I don't know about for you guys, but the, the rest of the book of Acts, you know, we've kind of hit a lot of the high points, the ascension of Christ, Pentecost, some of these great things. And for me, for a while, the rest of the book was sort of muddy. You know, I had these maps in the back of my Bible, you know, Paul goes on this journey, Paul goes on that journey, and I, I, didn't re I couldn't really put it all together. And so today we're going to try to do that. We're going to try to understand the importance of why this is in the Word. Why, why is this passage about these 13 years of Saul's life? Why is it in the Scriptures, and why is it important to us today. And we'll also look at the message that this converted Saul proclaims and the cost that he pays for this. So if you'll follow along with me, we'll be looking again at Acts 9. We'll be looking at verses 19 through 31. This is the word of the Lord. For some days he, Saul, was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem and those of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? 
But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. And when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord and spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you again this morning asking that you would by your spirit, empower the proclamation of your word that we would see the life of Saul and his journey and the persecution and proclamation in the scriptures and we would be encouraged knowing that you are truly the son of God, that you've sent your son, Jesus Christ, and that by faith in him, we might have life. Help us to trust in that this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. So like I said, this, this passage covers 13 years of Saul's life. And that might not be apparent, you know. You could read this very easily and think this was a matter of days or weeks or, you know, maybe even months. But not 13 years. And so I put on, on uh, the bulletin just an outline. I'm a very visual learner and it You know, I can hear something many times, but it's helpful for me to see it. So this is the breakdown of what we're going to look at today. We're going to see Saul in Damascus, Saul in Jerusalem, and Saul in Tarsus. And just to start off, there's a little bit of debate about these scriptures. There's some interesting uh, things that have been said about them. If you go to Galatians 1, 17... Paul adds some some details to this story. He'll he'll say that he went to Arabia in the middle of this Damascus story. And so historians or people that are critical of the scriptures have said, Luke and Paul are in conflict. And so we'll get into that a little bit later. But just to break it down really simply, we see Saul in Damascus for three years. He escapes. We see him in Jerusalem for two weeks. And he also escapes. And then we see him go to Tarsus. So basically all that to say, this is our outline for today. And these scriptures are not in contradiction, but we're looking at the parallel passages as we go. So just so we know that. Okay, let's get into it. So point one, Saul in Damascus. This is verses 19 through 25. And it's interesting, right? Last week we saw this dramatic conversion of the man Saul. He's blinded by this risen Lord, but ultimately healed. We see him profess his faith. He's baptized. And it says immediately 
he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues. And what does he proclaim? So we'll see two things. We'll see the proclamation of Paul and we'll see his persecution. So his proclamation. What does he say? He is the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. And this might not seem radical to us, right? We live in um, a different time than this first century. But this was a radical claim. This was not just the claim of Jesus being another child of God, right? He's saying he is the Son of God. And we know how radical this is. If you want to turn with me, it's worth it. Um, John chapter 5. In John chapter 5, Jesus just healed someone on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees are upset about this for multiple reasons. And in John chapter 5, verse 17, it says this. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus here said, my father is working. He's claiming that God is his father. And the Jews understood that this was a claim to be equal with God. This is not just a general claim of my father. This is saying God is my father. This is a claim to divinity, if you will. And so these people were seeking to kill Jesus. And we see a similar thing happen in the book of Acts, right? Saul says Jesus is the son of God. It's not just a general claim. It's a specific claim to divinity. And we see eventually these people seek to kill him. But, eventually, but initially they're amazed, right? They... They said, I thought you were just killing people that profess this message. Now you are doing it. But we see this is ultimately not enough. This amazement, this general, um, you know, amazement is not enough to convert them. We see Paul continue to preach, proclaim. But then we see the persecution come. In verse 23, we see that the Jews plotted to kill him. They plotted to kill him. And he eventually escapes through essentially a hole in the wall in a basket. <laughs> so this would have been interesting for two reasons. One is that it would have been very humbling. Saul was this great man that a lot of people looked up to in his previous life. And for him to humble himself, to be persecuted and to basically crawl through a hole in the wall and be lowered in a basket like a child almost would have been a very humbling experience for Saul. And I think that this is something we can look at and say, you know, Saul's not in this for the fame or the fortune. He's, he's humbling himself here. And it reminded me of another story in the scripture. Some of you might have thought of this, this lowering down from a wall. If you remember in the book of Joshua, they, were, they had just crossed into the promised land. And they were to take the, the city of Jericho. And they sent in spies. And there was a prostitute, Rahab, that um, protected these spies of Israel. But the city was rising up against them, trying to find them, and they end up being lowered through a hole in the wall, very similar to how Saul is. But it's interesting, there's almost a switch happening, if you, if you think about it. The people of Israel were trying to take over this Canaanite land. Now it is actually the Jews that are persecuting this message of Christ. It's a very interesting reversal, just an interesting parallel there. So we see both Saul's proclamation and his persecution. This is in Damascus, but um, through the providence of the Lord, he escapes. 
And then he moves to Jerusalem. So we see this in verses 26 through 30, Saul in Jerusalem. And it says he comes to Jerusalem and he attempts to join the disciples. He attempts to join the disciples. So we'll eventually see in this passage, there's still the proclamation and the persecution, but two sort of interesting things happen before that. There's hesitation on the part of the disciples, and there's a helping hand from Barnabas. So we see this hesitation uh, happen, right? Saul is coming to these disciples saying, I want to join. I am, I am a disciple. And there's this hesitation. There's this fear. And commentators kind of go back and forth and they debate whether these Christians in Jerusalem were wrong to do this or were they right? And in some ways, I think it might be asking the wrong question. If we go back, Jerusalem is where Saul was persecuting the most acutely. So you can think in your mind, in Jerusalem, this church, maybe some of their friends or family were persecuted by Saul, maybe even killed by Saul. And so it's not a crazy thing to have them be a little bit afraid of this Saul who's coming in saying, I'm one of you now. You know, maybe they think he's sort of some sort of Trojan horse, horse finding out this inside information and eventually is going to bind them or kill them or worse. So we can understand their hesitation to some extent, but ultimately we see Barnabas extend a helping hand. So we see hesitation from the disciples, but we see Barnabas extend a helping hand. And we've already been introduced to Barnabas earlier. If you remember, he was the one that sold his land and gave all of the proceeds to the church. So he's a well-off man, well-spoken of, and we'll see his story continue in the book of Acts. But he extends this helping hand. He says, I've seen Saul. He's seen the Lord, and he's spoken about the Lord. And he is a believer. He's, done, he's both seen the Lord and he's spoken of the Lord. And it's amazing. This is really the beginning of a flourishing friendship. In Acts 11, we'll see Barnabas go to Antioch, where Saul ends up, and bring Saul with him to Antioch to try to encourage these believers there. And then in Acts 13, we'll see them sent out on their first missionary journey together. So it's amazing. This helping hand ends up being the beginning of a friendship that and really a partnership in ministry together. So we see this hesitation and Barnabas ultimately extend a helping hand. And then we saw what we saw in Damascus, right? In Jerusalem, we see the same thing. Paul proclaims Jesus is the Christ. He is the son of God, the true son of God. And we ultimately see him persecuted again, this time by the Hellenists, which are the Greek speaking Jews. And they are seeking to kill him just as in Damascus. And so we might ask the question, okay, Kendall, why does this matter? Why is this in our scriptures? Okay, so what? Saul went to Damascus. Then he went to Jerusalem. What's the big deal? But it's interesting. It's important to understand these things because later on in Paul's letter to the church in Galatia, in Galatians 1, Paul makes a theological point about his ministry based on the chronological events of this. Because people are saying, oh, you just have a handed down message from Peter, right? Or you're just kind of a second generation apostle or maybe a second generation pope. And Paul points back to these events and he says, I got nothing from Peter. He extended the right hand of fellowship, but he added nothing to my message. So 
This is an important part of this story and really of what Paul goes on later to talk about. So Paul makes a theological point based on these chronological events, saying, I'm not a second-generation apostle or second-generation pope. I am an apostle. The risen Lord appeared to me. Peter didn't add anything that this message is the same. And so this is Saul in Jerusalem. And then, because of this persecution, he is ultimately sent to Tarsus. And we see this in verses 30 through 31. And like it shows there, this was about an eight to ten year period that Saul is in Tarsus. This is ultimately where Barnabas finds him. And it's interesting, Tarsus is where Saul is from, if you remember Saul of Tarsus. And if you want to turn with me in Acts 22, so a couple chapters down, in Acts 22, we kind of hear a little bit more about this story of Saul going to Tarsus. And we see that, um, you know, we might ask the question, why did Saul run? You know, sometimes he doesn't run. Sometimes he's in prison. Sometimes he's, he eventually gets killed for his faith. Why does he choose to run? And we see it was ultimately because the Lord said to. And we see Saul even push back on this. So in Acts 22, verse 17, it says this. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance. And I saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approved and watching over the garments of those who killed him. He's basically saying, I have street cred. (laughs) It's almost like the teardrop on the eye. He's saying, I killed people. (laughs) They should believe me. But, But ultimately, we see the Lord say to him, go for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. So Saul did not want to leave Jerusalem. He wanted to stay. He said, I was a persecutor. I, you know, I have street cred. And ultimately, the Lord says, they will not believe. You need to leave and you need to go. And so we see Saul do that. And so in our verses today, it ends. I love these last two verses. They're beautiful. It says, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So we see Saul leaves Tarsus. He'll eventually be um, picked up by Barnabas and they will go out on their missionary journey. But in Jerusalem and Judea and Galilee, Samaria, we see peace. We see the church built up. We see them walking not only in fear of the Lord, but in comfort of the Holy Spirit. And the church is multiplied. So that is our text this morning. And we have to ask the question, how can we apply this? Or, or what's the importance of this passage? Why is this in the Word, like we said earlier? So three things this morning. First is that God's Word is trustworthy that God's word is trustworthy. Another word that we could say is infallible. Infallible meaning not only that it does not have error, but that it cannot contain error. That God's word is trustworthy. That it does not contain error because it is God-breathed. It is God's word. And so many will look at this passage and say, 
these events don't line up. Luke is in conflict with Paul. Your scriptures are invalid. They're not historical. They're not valid. So we can throw out everything. I actually had a friend in college uh, say to me this. He said, I don't believe the words because of the Proverbs. And I said, tell me more. And he said, there's a scripture in the Proverbs that says, answer a fool according to his folly. And then it says, don't answer a fool according to his folly right after. Answer a fool, don't answer a fool. And he said, that is insanity. I can't believe that. And I, thinking back on it, it's actually pretty easily solved because Proverbs is wisdom literature. Sometimes it is wise to answer a fool according to his folly. And sometimes it is not wise to answer a fool according to his folly. And so, but because of this seeming contradiction, this man threw out the whole scripture. And we have to confess that, that the word has no errors, that it has no contradictions. And I think it's helpful, even our confession mentions this. Not only does it say that we need to believe the word because... It is the word, but it takes the power of the spirit to enlighten our minds to believe the word as the word of God, as theanustos, God breathed. And further on in chapter 14, on this chapter on saving faith, it says, by this faith, a Christian believes to be true whatsoever is revealed in the word. And so for us as believers, we have to confess that not only should we believe the word because it is God's word and we need the power of the spirit to enlighten our minds to believe it, but also that's part of saving faith is believing what God said and that it is true and that it is um, an important part of what we believe. It is our only sufficient source of um, faith and practice. So the word does not have error. It is trustworthy. And so maybe some of us today are struggling with that. Maybe we have difficult questions about the scriptures. Maybe there's another passage that seems contradictory, you know. Talk, let's talk about it. Come up to me after, Daryl, anyone. Let's talk about those problems and work through those because we do confess that God's word is trustworthy. And so um, we believe it can be held up to scrutiny. So God's word is trustworthy. Secondly, We need to count the cost. We need to count the cost. We see Saul here had to count the cost. Like we said, he was this man that was very popular. He he had all these things about his life that were great, that he loved. And he ultimately had to count the cost. We see Saul not saved to a life of prosperity or, um, you know, popularity. We see him persecuted. And several plots to kill him. I mean, I can't even imagine multiple times someone telling me they want to kill me. That would just be, that would be really hard. And so we see the, um, the Apostle Paul here have to count the cost. And you might be familiar with this language. This is from Luke 14. In Luke 14, Jesus says this. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father his own mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? 
Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to mock him. So, therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus here is saying we need to count the cost. And I think this is applicable in two ways. First, that in terms of suffering externally, right, we need to count the cost. That as Christians, unbelievers do not love this message. Even though it is a message of grace and mercy. Come, repent of your sins and turn to Christ. We see unbelievers do not like this message. There's plots to kill in some cases. Or maybe this persecution looks different. But we need to count the cost. And secondly, we need to count the cost in terms of our sin. And let me explain that a little bit. I think there's a popular message out there that the Christian life is one where we can be saved from our sins, that God will give us eternal life, saved from hell, but we can somehow still keep our sin, right? We can kind of keep it in this nice little pile. God doesn't actually call us to change or to repent or to turn from our sin. What does Paul later go on to say? Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? That the idolaters, sorcerers, greedy, will not inherit the kingdom of God. And he goes on to say, but such were some of you. You were washed, you were sanctified. So we need to count the cost that whether it's with unbelievers, the suffering and external persecution that we have to face, or even the, um, the internal sin that we have to give up, that we have to lay at the Lord's feet, we need to count that cost. And... This is important. And lastly, we'll look at, so we've seen that God's word is trustworthy, that we need to count the cost, and finally, behold the better son of God. Behold the better son of God. Why can we count the cost? Why is the cost worthy? Because we have the better son of God. What does Paul say here? Jesus is the Son of God. This is not the first time this language of Son of God is used, right? If we know, Adam was called a Son of God. We see this explicitly stated in Luke 4, but Adam in the garden was called a Son of God. But what happened? He failed. He broke God's covenant, and he was exiled. Even Israel is called a Son of God in Exodus 4. And there's... Even the kings are spoken of as these sons of God. And there's this idea in the Old Testament, like Daryl mentioned earlier, that is looking forward to this one, this second Adam, this better Adam that's going to be the perfect son of God, that is going to work and enter God's rest. And so we see Saul here proclaiming that very message that Christ is the true and better son of God. He did what Adam failed to do. He fulfilled the law perfectly. And entered God's rest. But not only that, he paid the curse that Adam had earned for us. And so, this morning, for us, we need to be found in the second Adam, not the first. We're born in the first Adam, but we need to be found and take our refuge in the second, better Adam, the true Son of God. So, this morning, may we count the cost, but may we ultimately look to Christ, who is the better Son of God. Would you pray with me? Dear gracious Father, we thank you for this time that we get to come and gather 
to rest from our worldly activities as we wait for that ultimate rest that Christ has purchased for us in heaven. And we come today worshiping you, the better Son of God, who sits at the right hand of God, who ever lives to make intercession for us. And even though we struggle in this life, we don't always do your will. Sometimes we fail. Sometimes we fail epically and dramatically. But we know we have a great high priest who ever lives to make intercession for us. And today, may we find refuge in him. May we be found to be standing on the solid rock of Christ. And by your spirit, would you empower us this week to fight our sin, to kill our sin, and to trust in Christ today. In your name we pray. Amen. If you turn with me and stand, we'll be singing song number five, Solid Rock. Darkness seems to hide his face.
will join with me in singing the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. benediction this morning from Psalm 2, where we see the promise of this Son that those who turn from Him can take refuge. Receive the blessing. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled, and blessed are all who take refuge in him. Grace and peace as you go today.